from Parkway Church in Kurana, this is the Parkway Podcast. Our prayer is that this message blesses and encourages you today as you listen. If you would like to know more information on who we are as a church, you can visit our website, weareparkway.com. Well, if you have your Bible, open up to Revelation chapter 1. And uh, as you're turning there, I'm going to ask that we, we bow our heads and we pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can learn and grow in it. Thank you that we can come and worship, Lord. And I, I pray, God, that we would be in your presence this morning, even as we look at your word, that we open in our minds and our hearts to receive the words you want to speak this morning and the truth that you want to sow into our hearts so that when we leave here, God, we're encouraged, we're recalibrated, we're realigned with the truth of Jesus ready for our week. So be with us right now as we turn attention to your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So we're going to start um, a new series that's going to last probably for, you know, the next five to eight Sundays. And we're going to look at the book of Revelation, specifically uh, chapters one through three and the messages to the seven churches there. This is the most important chapters in the book of Revelation because they really help create the context that helps us understand the rest of the book. And I, I recently, this past week, it might have been on Friday or Saturday, I saw on social media, uh, I follow this, this scholar who, who, was, who teaches Revelations extensively and was in the middle of teaching it in some university in the States. And he said, it's extremely, this is what he said, it's extremely difficult to teach in a few sessions what some spend their entire life teaching and teach wrong. And so I'm just going to attempt to, to give some insight to, to this this morning. I didn't plan on doing this. This was not part of my plan. This was not part of when I, when I sit down and I pray and I kind of ask the Lord, what are some things that we need to be looking at and, and teaching? What are, some, what are some fields that I need to take the church to so they can graze and learn? Um, Revelations was not in the plan, okay? There was a different plan that was mapped out. Um, in fact, I thought about doing it last year but then I saw some other churches doing it, and I didn't just want that to be the bandwagon thing. I didn't want this to be something we looked at because, oh, we're in like, you know, COVID was new, and we didn't know stuff, and maybe it's kind of like the end of the world, and we should look at this. Like, I didn't just want to do that because everybody was doing it. Um, I didn't want to. Um, so I kind of just, I put it aside, and, but then I felt stirred in spring, so I actually read a couple commentaries on Revelation. I uh, listened to a few series from pastors that I respect, and then I shelved it. But then as I went to go study for the next set of messages that, that I believe the Lord was leading us to, I was really drawn back to this. And I was kind of just pulled back in this direction because I really believe that we are going through a time in our society that's impacting the church in the West. And the message that the Lord gives to these churches, I think, is relevant for us today and has a lot for us. Um, I'm going to share a little bit about, about that, but um, there's specifically three areas that um, they needed to be addressed, that, that, that John, sorry, was addressing to these three churches from the Lord. And I believe those three areas are very applicable today. And I'll share a little bit about that um, in a bit. Now, the Revelations is an incredibly intimidating book. The book of Revelation is an incredibly intimidating book, but it doesn't need to be. Um, most of us are comfortable in the Gospels, right? We like the Gospels. We like the story of Jesus, we like the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. We like the narrative ones, right? We like those ones that are easy to follow. They have a story to them. 
Um, we even like the epistles, right? The letters that, you know, Paul and Peter and John, they had sent to different churches because those are easier to understand. But, but when we come to this one, we kind of tiptoe around it. We kind of tiptoe because it's, it's difficult to understand, you know, and so we kind of just, we give it to the, to the scholars and the religious elite and those with superior knowledge to, to dissect the hidden code and then maybe hopefully share a little bit of information with us um, because we don't want to go near it. Or uh, what I've encountered is we tend to build a theology of Revelation from 90s horror Christian movies. If you remember some of those, we're, we're quick to, well, yeah, this is what's going to happen, but we don't actually turn to the scripture to see what the scripture says. We, we build it off of a movie. It should be the other way, in case you didn't know. It's a pretty intimidating book, but it doesn't need to be. It has a lot of imagery and symbols, which can be difficult to un- understand. There have been a lot of different interpretations and wrong interpretations. But I think all of us, immediately when we think of the book of Revelations, we think of the end of times. That's the first thing that comes to your mind, which is not necessarily wrong, per se, but it's not the whole picture. It is not the whole picture. There is a message here for every time, people, and generation. It's to the original audience. It's to a group of people. It's to a specific group of people in a specific time, in a certain political climate, in a certain uh, time period around life, but it's for us today. It's here for us now. It's written to them, which is important for us to understand when we're understanding the book of Revelation, but it's also for us now, and because of that, it's incredibly valuable. And there's so much actual hope in the book of Revelation. There's so much hope and there's assurance and there's celebration for those of us that hear the message and respond. And so I think the invitation from God for us as we look at this and as we engage in this series of talks is to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Revelations throughout um, says this, whoever has ears, this is Jesus speaking, Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are you listening to what the Spirit of God is saying to the church? The question is not, does God still speak? That is not the question. God still speaks. The question is, are we listening? And are we responding to what he's saying to us? So here's what I want to do um, today is I want to give us a quick snapshot of, of the book and how to understand the book I want to give you some context for our series as we look at chapters one through three, and then I want to point you to the person at the center stage, because there is a person at the center of this book. It's not necessarily just depicting a series of final events in history and what is going to come and what's it going to look like, but who is at the center of it all. In fact, the whole Bible points to one person. The very first book of the Bible, Genesis, the very last book, Revelation, and every book in between points to one person. And we need to recall to mind when we're reading the Bible that we're not just reading one book that was written by some dude long ago. We think that because it's in this form. But what we actually have in our possession here is a collection of holy ancient writings. Holy, that word holy like sounds like you know, sacred to us, but it means set apart. That's what it means. It means to be different than. It means to be other than. And so we have books. We have a collection of writings that is unlike anything else. And it's full of various genres. We have poetry 
and we have wisdom literature, and we have law, and we have uh, op- uh, uh, narratives, and we have apocalyptic literature, which is revela- what Revelation is. It's full of different um, genres. It's written by 40 different authors across three different continents over a span of 1,500 years. And when you consider all of that, there is incredible harmony in the thought and the message. Why? Because it was co-authored by God. God inspired, through the Holy Spirit, the writers to write his story. So when you open up the Bible, you need to think about that. That I'm reading a collection of ancient writings that have been inspired by God. It's his story. And it's all pointing to one person named Jesus, who is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's at the center of the scriptures, and he is at the center of revelation. So I'm going to start there. And I'm going to end there today. Because the most important thing about the book of Revelation is that everything that is to come, every future thing that Revelation points to, everything that we're going to read and look at over the next few weeks, everything you would read if you read the whole book is presented um, and flows through Jesus, who is described at the beginning of the book as the Alpha and the Omega. He's the the first and the last, the the beginning and the end. The one who is and the one who was and the one who is to come. Now that is a really big claim for this book to make in the time when it was written. When it was written, it was written, said to be written around 95 AD, maybe a little bit before, last bit of the first century. And in that time, the world claimed that Caesar was Lord. Caesar was king, Caesar sat on the throne, and Caesar himself, he liked power and he liked authority, so he began to claim to be God, and so people believed that he was the image of God. That was Caesar. That was the claim of the political power of the time, and anything that rebelled against that narrative was a traitor, was tried, was persecuted, and killed. In fact, all of the disciples... The apostles, the 12 apostles, with the exception of John, and I'll share a little bit about that in a bit, were martyred because they claimed that Jesus was Lord, not Caesar. That's the big claim of, of, of Revelation, that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. So the first century world was a time when, when powerful forces of evil and idolatrous and tyrannous political systems were using power and fear to exert rule and reign. And the message of Jesus in revelation to the churches is that these forces can be and are being overthrown by his victory. And ultimately, he is the Almighty, not Caesar. That's the big message, that he rules and reigns, that he is supreme, not Caesar or anyone else who claims to be in that time or that time moving forward. And that's still true today. He's still supreme. And he still rules and reigns. And he's still the Alpha and the Omega. He's still the beginning and the end. He's still the one who is and who was and who is to come. And no power or no ruler or no authority that claims to be has that right. Because he is supreme. And so when you look through the book and you see these these images and these visions and these prophecies, it's not so much offering a depiction of future events in a clear chronological sequence. Sometimes we're trying to like put it in order, because we like things in linear 
in a linear way, but instead it's an overlapping cycle of visions, of alternating warnings and encouragement that are designed to promote faithful endurance of God's people when powers and authorities are trying to exert rule and reign. That's the biggest message in the book, is endure and remain faithful in Jesus as Lord. So there is a message here that we'll look at a little bit and over the next couple weeks for today in one, or in one context for them, but it has a message for every generation and every time. That the world and apostate rulers, they're gonna fight for dominion and they're gonna fight for power and life as we know it may be destroyed. But remain faithful, endure, hold fast because God's promises will be fulfilled. Why? Because Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. He's the center of this book. What, what is Revelation about? Don't think end times immediately. Revelation is about the supremacy of Jesus. That should be the go-to. Not left behind movies, you know, nothing of that nature. What is Revelation about? The supremacy of Christ and the lordship and rule and reign of God. So this, uh, this book, if you have it, turn to Revelation chapter one. It was written um, by a guy named John. It was a revelation given to uh, John by Jesus, and we need to think, and I've even caught myself saying it a few times even now, it's not revelations, it's revelation. It's not multiple revelations. It's one revelation from Jesus given to John. We like to dissect it, we like to divide it, but you can't do that. You do a disservice to the book. The book's better understood in a whole um, as one. So it's given to a guy named John. If you have a Bible, turn to uh, Revelation chapter one. We're gonna look at verse nine first here. It says this. It says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So here is, here is this guy named John. Most believe it's the apostle John the beloved disciple of Jesus, the writer of the Gospel of John. Um, but many scholars actually disagree with that because he doesn't actually give us information as to whether or not that may be him. But if it is John the Apostle, it actually provides us with some interesting um, context and backstory for this book and this line. Because John was exiled to the island of Patmos because he preached a different narrative than the wider society. When society hailed Caesar, John hailed Jesus. When society promoted the decrees of Rome, John preached the decrees of God. When society called for conformity, John preached freedom in Jesus. And for that, they actually tried to martyr him. They actually tried to martyr him. Church history tells us the most plausible story, there's a few theories out there, but the most plausible story is that he was arrested in Ephesus. John did some great work in Ephesus actually after the, the ascension of Jesus. Um, Paul started a church in Ephesus and then John later went there and he became a leader in that church. And in fact, when you look at the, the seven churches that are in Revelation, the first one that's mentioned is Ephesus and Ephesus is said to have planted the other six churches which is really interesting. But they, they arrested him, and they threw him into a huge cauldron of boiling oil. But much like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, John wasn't harmed, but he was miraculously delivered. 
They pull him up out of the soil, and he's not dead. Well, what do we do with him? So they exiled him, and they sent him to the island of Patmos to work in slave labor in the mines. Now, here's the message in that, okay? The message is that it's not that you're going to be miraculously spared, and often we push that and, and, and preach that in churches, right? That God is going to deliver and God is going to um, uh, free you from captivity and you will not be harmed. And there's that prosperity leaning in there. And, and that's not to say that that won't happen because it happens. And God does do that and he works miraculously. But the message here is that when you stand up for your faith in Jesus and when you live for God and your life preaches the word of God because you have a deep, profound belief that Jesus is true and his message is, is right and you do that in a culture and a society that stands in strong opposition to that, you will face difficulty. John states, I'm on this island. I'm sentenced to slave labor because the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He says, I'm your brother and I'm your companion, not in freedom, not in miraculous deliverances, not in wealth and prosperity. He says, I'm your brother and companion in suffering and in kingdom and in endurance. See, the reward for a true believer is not prosperity and wealth and freedom in this age, though we may have that. The reward for, the, for a believer, it waits those who faithfully endure the suffering of this world. In fact, one scholar, N.T. Wright, he said this. This is the whole point of this book. Jesus won the victory through his suffering, and so must his people. That's not a nice message to preach. It's just the truth. <laughs> so John's preaching the word with his life and his actions and he's rewarded by them trying to kill him, but they can, and so they exile him into this island into slave labor on Patmos. See, when you suffer because of Jesus, we need, to, we need to keep this in our head. When we suffer, not just suffering all the time, but when we suffer because of Jesus, that's part of what it means to follow after him. So when you, because of your faith... And because of what you claim as a follower of Jesus, and because of what you do as a follower of Jesus, are, are you face opposition, or you face difficulty, or you face hatred, or you face, you know, looks at work, which is probably what you're going to get. You're likely not going to be martyred. That's part of what it means to follow Jesus. And if you are ashamed of that, then you're missing part of what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus said, you will be hated because of me. He didn't say, you'll be liked and loved, and everyone will want to be near you. That's what our society will want to preach. You'll be hated because of me. So John continues, he says, in verse 10, he says, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. So John's, John's in worship, and he's in the presence of God. Some say that he had some sort of out-of-body experience. Some say that it was just a vision. Um, whatever exactly it was, he was in the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit. You can sentence him to, to slave labor. You can exile him on an island to prevent him from preaching, but that's not gonna change the fact that John still worships. He doesn't let suffering get him down. In fact, it gives him a time to pray and reflect and receive this explosive vision that is of God's power and love for the church. So he's in worship, he's in the spirit. Do you know what? We wonder why we don't hear from God. I don't hear God, and I'm not moved by God. Well, do we actually pause and engage in the presence of God? Like We've been given opportunities here. I remember I was, I was thinking about this this morning. 
I was at a youth uh, convention years ago, and there was this altar that was flooded with students. And I remember watching this one student just sit on this pew, and he's just got his, like people are in tears in the altar, right? People are just being overcome by the presence of God. People are praying over others for healing and purpose and all sorts of different things. And there's this, this kid that's just sitting with his arms like relaxing. And I felt in my heart of time, I must have been like, I was like 23 years old, 24, I was young, younger, younger. And I felt in my heart like I, gotta, I, just, I went over him and I said, hey, man, I just feel like I got to tell you this. This is your opportunity. This opportunity has been given to you to engage in the presence of God. Don't waste it. Don't lose it. Take it. You know, we wonder why we don't hear from God, but do we take the opportunities that have been given to us to press into his presence, to open up his word, to hear from him? Here's John. He's, he's exiled, but he has has this, this deep encounter in the manifest presence of God, and we know that it's the manifest. Manifest is to reveal, to make known, right? Presence of God, because he encounters God and he sees visions. So he says, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet. So he's in the presence of God, I heard a voice, and it's loud, and it's clear, and it broke through every other sound, and that's what a trumpet does. If you ever hear a trumpet, it just, it cuts through every sound, right? It's distinct, it's, it's obnoxious, and you could be doing anything else, and a trumpet would just blare right through. And so he's in this vision, and he hears a voice that just cuts through every other sound. And if we, if we skip ahead, which hopefully you have looked at this before, um, if you know the story, or if you know the writings of John, he's, he's talking about the Word of God, right? John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, right? He's talking about the word. He's hearing this loud, commanding voice like a trumpet. And he's talking about it. And he says this. He says, I heard this voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. He says, write, write down what you see and send it to the churches. And this is so important for understanding the book of Revelation. This is the context. The book of Revelation was sent to seven churches. The book of Revelation was, was, was written with a message for seven churches. Not just these, these first three chapters. We, we categorize it, right? We break it down. We think this is the revelation for the churches, and then this is the revelation for these people, and this is the revelation for us. And we multiply the revelation. He says, no, this is the revelation that I'm giving you, send it to the churches. And these were actual real churches, which is now in modern-day Turkey. And typically what would happen, like specifically with like the epistles and the letters of Paul and, and Peter, is, is they were directed to a church, and what they would do is they would either copy it and distribute it to other churches, so they'd share the message, because it was to them, but it had a, a message for everybody. Or they'd read it, and then they'd pass it Along, And so there's a message here that is to these churches. And that is so important to know and keep in your head when we're trying to understand the book. It's to these churches, but it's for us. When we're looking at Galatians and Ephesians and, and Colossians and we're reading First and Second Corinthians, they're written to people. 
So there's context there. There's stuff that we need to understand. There's, there's things that are happening behind the scenes in that context, in that time, in that era that are so important to understand. It's to them, but we can glean something from it. We can learn truth. And that's the same with revelations here. So this was initially addressed to readers living in Roman rule, but it raises some concerns for us today. And you, you're going to see the number seven, right, throughout Revelation. In fact, you're going to see a lot of numbers when you read Revelations. And numbers are, are symbolic often when they're in Scripture, especially in apocalyptic literature. And so it's not necessarily like seven specifically, but, but it's a number that represents something. And seven actually is a symbolic represents perfection. And so a lot of scholars believe that even though this was written to seven churches because they're named and these churches actually have historical, um, uh, as a historical places and location, that it's representative of the church as a whole. Right? So when we look, at, we look at the letter that he sends to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and he's got these words, you know, there's something in there that we can take away and say, okay, maybe that's for me and for us. Now there are three main messages that appear to the, the letter in the seven to the seven churches, three that we need to hear and over the course of our time we're gonna look at. The first is this. Some were facing persecution. So the congregations of Smyrna and Philadelphia, they were facing local opposition. And if you read it, which we will, there is this call to them to endure and keep the faith. There was tension. The tension came from their loyalty to Jesus as Lord. They claimed Jesus was Lord and not Caesar. And so when you see later visions of horrific beasts unleashing terror on the church, that's portrayed to reveal the true character of the powers and the rulers. And so the call of faith takes the form of faithful endurance. Endure. And I think that is so crucial for today. When we're seeing powers and rulers and authority exert rule and reign, and we wonder where we fit as a church, and our faith is being challenged, or maybe we're being persecuted, which right now, I would say we're not. Afghanistan, absolutely. But the call is to endure, to remain faithful, hold on. You know, when you're in your workplace and you're facing opposition from, from buddies and coworkers or, or a boss, because of your faith in Christ, endure, hold on, remain faithful. That's the message that he's sending to these churches. I see it, I know it, hold on. Remain faithful. The second is several faced issues of assimilation. Some congregations, Ephesus, Pergamum, and Thyatira, were compromising their faith to maintain good social relationships. And so there you see visions later on of worshiping the creator and the lamb versus the beast. And in doing so, Jesus is calling for clearer commitment lines. And the message is this. Do not assimilate. Do not conform. Be different then. That's why the scriptures say, be holy as I am Holy. Draw your commitment lines. Who has your allegiance? He's, he's calling them to, to, to draw a clear line in the sand. Thirdly, there was the issue of complacency. Some, Sardis and Laodicea, had, have gotten comfortable in their wealth and life, and so they became spiritually dead. And this is so many of us. We are so comfortable and complacent and health and wealth has made us lukewarm. 
right? Like we're like, this is good, pastor, and then we go home, we have a nice burger on the barbecue, and we sit back and watch Netflix. Nothing wrong with that. Did my church thing. Oh, man, he went a little bit long today, but that's fine because I did it, I went, and then we'll wait until Wednesday so I can sign up really quick or I can watch online. I'm going to watch it later because I need to nap. I don't really want to read the Bible. I'm not a reader. There's audio now. I'm not a listener either. (laughs) There's visuals. I don't like seeing. We're complacent. And so to startle them out of their comfort, we see visions of harlots that are seducing people with the promise of wealth. So Jesus is calling them to wake up and repent. Wake up. Persecution, assimilation, complacency that plagued the churches in 95 AD and it plagues church in 2021. Are you feeling persecuted? Endure. Are you compromising? Draw the line. Are we complacent? Wake up and repent. I invite the worship team to come. So John is in this vision. He's hearing this voice. And it says that he turned to see who was talking to him. Who is this loud commanding voice? It says this, verse 12. It says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, which is a reference to Daniel, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. And the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. And his feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And his right hand, he held seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. Who is this person? Who is this person that appears to be glowing with perfect radiance? And so John looks at him. He doesn't have words to describe exactly what he's seeing. So he's using comparisons. He's like this, and his hair was like that. And it doesn't fit within the context of our physical realm, so I have to use these words to try to wrap my head around it. This someone is, doesn't fit in ordinary speech. There's not enough things that I can use to describe the glory. This person doesn't belong in the physical realm, but belongs in the divine realm. And this is the glorified Christ. This is Jesus. This is the risen Savior. This is the Lord of life. Now, here's what we do, though. We don't have this image of Jesus in our heads. We have this picture of a very nomadic carpenter who's wearing robes that are a little dirty because he's been walking on sandy roads and he's been hanging out with the broken and the destitute and the sick, and that is a beautiful picture of Jesus, right? And that's the picture we often have of Jesus, But the person that John is seeing is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and the one who was and the one who is to come. You see, you need to hear this. The initial thing that John sees in this revelation is not a future event. It's not not what is to come. It's not a description of what things are going to happen, but the present reality found in a person. 
And I, if I could get us to shift our mindset from seeing Jesus as this nomadic carpenter who sleeps on couches and, and, and fishes with people, which is a great picture, and shift it to, to who he is in his glory because this is how Christ exists right now. Presently, right now, as I stand and you sit and as you're watching online, that is how Jesus looks. He doesn't look like the nomadic guy anymore. He's in his glorified body. He's in his glorified state. And he has things that, around him that we, the glory around him that we can't use anything within the confines of ordinary speech to describe. So we have to say, man, his eyes were like blazing fire. And his, his hair was white, as white as snow, and his feet were bronze, like they'd just been coming out of a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing water. That's who Jesus is. And that's who's at the center of this book, and he presently is sitting on the throne. And so as we get to the messages of the churches, and as we venture into the book, and as you read on, and as you, as you go through, through life, and you go into your workplace and you, you serve in ministry and you, you approach relationships and you deal with politics and COVID and restrictions, Jesus is enthroned in glory. He sits on the throne, which tells me, person who's fearing government right now, stop, because Jesus sits on the throne. And the person who's fearing COVID right now, stop, because Jesus sits on the throne. And the person that's trying to divide, stop trying to divide, because Jesus is trying to unify as he sits on the throne in glory. That's who he is, and that's who we serve, and that's who's given this message. And so when we look at this, it's not so much what's going to happen, when's it going to happen, and is it now, and is that that, and let's tie it to this, and what are we going to do? Stop. Look at who is in the center of it all. So this is what John does. It says that when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. His response to being before the glorified Savior of the world is to fall down. And that's a very similar response to Isaiah. When you see Isaiah, who's brought before the throne room of God, he counts himself before God as unworthy. Don't think for a moment that when you stand before God, you're going to give him a piece of your mind. Don't think for a moment that you won't bow down before his supremacy. I don't care how tough you are. Don't think for a second that you'll be able to keep your composure because I'm not an emotional person. It's a load of baloney because when you stand before God, every knee, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess because that's what the scriptures Amen. say. And John, listen, John is someone who knows the Lord. He's been boiled and survived. He's been exiled and he's in a, motion, a moment of worship and praise on the Lord's day. He's in the presence of God. He knows it. He's encountered Jesus before through the Holy Spirit, much like you have. But when he has this picture and this vision of who Jesus is right now as he sits on his throne, he can't stand the fall. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus sits on the throne. He's in charge. He's the beginning of the end. I invite you to stand with me.
I want to read you this next line. We're going to worship in a second here. So here's the next line. And is this not true of what we know of Jesus, okay? It says, then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. What does Jesus say to him? Fear not. Fear not what can happen, what will happen. He doesn't say, I'm gonna give you pictures of beasts and warnings and you're gonna be terrified and you should wonder when it's all gonna happen. He says, fear not because I was dead and now I'm alive forevermore. Fear not what may come. Do not be afraid because I am the first and the, and the last. And then he says this, he says, write what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. Write down what you've seen. I had to pause there, I'm like, he wanted him, before he even started giving him the, the visions, before he started giving him the messages to the churches, he's like, yeah, you're gonna write all that down, but write down what you've seen. Because the first thing that we need to do when we approach this book, and the first thing that we need to recall to our mind every single day of our lives is who is sitting on the throne. Write down who you've, what you've seen and who you've seen. It is Jesus enthroned in glory. And the final words of Jesus before he addresses the church is he says this, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. This is Jesus talking. He says, the stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, this is a teaching thing. Some people like, some scholars suggest that angels there because the word angel means messenger are leaders or overseers of, of churches and organizations. But a lot of scholars are suggesting no, because in the rest of the book, angel means divine being. So there are divine representatives that are overseeing churches. It says there are angels of seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. If we go back to just a little bit in the scriptures here, in the, in the verses, who was standing among the seven lampstands? Jesus. Jesus is among the churches. Jesus is with his church. He's on the throne, but he's still with his people. He hasn't forgotten us. He hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't left the church. He's with the church. He's got a message for the churches. He's got a message for our church. He's got a message for us. He loves his church. He died for his church, and he has a message, and it begins with recognizing, acknowledging, and assigning his lordship overall over Caesar and over Rome and over Ontario, and over Canada. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He is the center of it all. Would you bow our heads? We're gonna worship. Father God, we just, we just claim right now your supremacy, and we just proclaim that in this place, God, and as we worship you right now in the name of Jesus, we ask, we ask, Father God, bring to our attention and our mind and our heart your glory and your supremacy and your rulership and your reign. God, help us to see who you are right now and where you are and what you hold in your hands, that you are the first and the last, you are the beginning and the end, that you were dead, but now you are alive and you are alive forevermore and you hold the keys to Hades and to life in your hands. And though we may face everything that we face in this world, we have a king who is Lord over all. And so in in the name of Jesus, God, bring that to the, to the forefront of our mind as we worship you in the name of Jesus. Come on, let's worship the King right now. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that this message brought you closer with Jesus and gave you a better understanding of your walk with him today. If you would like to know more about who we are as a church, you can visit our website 
weareparkway.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram at parkway.church.